Well, we're starting, as I said, our new series today for this term. We're looking together at the book of Joshua. Uh, this is a book of the Bible that I expect that most of our members won't have read recently, um, if you've read it at all. Um, and I have never yet preached a sermon from Joshua, and I was ordained 13 years ago. So um, this will probably be new uh, to most of us here. So I want us to begin then by asking this question, um, what is um, the book of Joshua and why might we study it as Christians um, and as a congregation together? So if you're not familiar with it, Joshua is one of the historical books uh, of the Old Testament. So it's, one of the, it's the sixth book uh, in the Old Testament and it comes, it's the first one after what's called the uh, Pentateuch, or the, or the first five books of the Old Testament which together are called the books of the law. And after Joshua, and including it, we have a series then of kind of linked historical books that include uh, Judges, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Um, and there's also another grouping of historical books in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. They're all related to each other. And all these books together, they kind of tell the story of the nation of Israel from the period after the exodus from Egypt, after the death of Moses, when these people are about to enter into the promised land of Canaan. And then that goes through hundreds of years of their various leaders and kings and what they did. And these books finish, or this story finishes with the period uh, of the destruction of the nations of Israel and Judah and the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon in the 6th century BC. And so the book of Joshua is the first of these historical books, really. And as we heard in this first reading from chapter 1, uh, it picks up right after the death of Moses. And it covers the period of the leadership um, of his successor, Joshua, who was the man who led the people of Israel on their campaign as they entered the land of Canaan. And this is after the 40 years they'd spent wandering in the wilderness. Now, Joshua, it says, was an aide or a servant of Moses for quite a long time. And he went up, for instance, uh, on Mount Sinai with him when he received the Ten Commandments. Uh, and in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 27, we read about Joshua being anointed by Moses for leadership after him. Now, it's unclear exactly who wrote the book of Joshua. And uh, there are many theories uh, about that. I prefer the theory that these historical books together were edited on the basis of ancient records or memories uh, of the period they talk about, but they were put together perhaps by someone in the period just before or during the exile of the Jewish people in Babylon. And the idea being that as a whole, these historical stories are intended to show how God's people ended up in exile through their failure to be faithful to God and to uphold the law of God properly and to show the, how they can avoid that happening again. Now, as I start this series on Joshua, there are two, I think, very important questions that will determine what we talk about uh, when we read the book of Joshua together. And these questions are, firstly, why are these historical books in our Christian Bible? And secondly, how do we read themselves properly for us today? So those are our two questions for this morning. So the fact is, I think you would agree, perhaps if you've read these books recently, these are very difficult texts for us to understand and to read today. Um, in 2024, which is about 3,000 years after the events described here, um, they describe an ancient culture in which the names and the places and the values and the customs of the people there are completely foreign to us. Um, the further problem that many people have is that the events um, and the actions that are described in these books are often quite confusing or even repellent for us to read about. 
particularly in a spiritual book like the Bible. And the book of Joshua may be particularly problematic to us because, describing as it does, uh, the conduct of a holy war and the violent dispossession of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And this often troubles Christians as they read it because it seems at odds with our understanding and our experience of who God is and his gospel of Jesus, which is of love and peace to the world. And this issue is often raised by people outside of Christianity as a reason not to believe or to dismiss the Bible as not being worth reading. And this is a genuine problem, and it's one reason I would like to study Joshua better. And these issues will probably come up a bit more in the following weeks as we look at this book together. So before we get into the passage itself then today, I just want to explain to you my method of interpretation and application of Joshua to us as Christians and the other historical books too. I think it's helpful to start this way, otherwise we'll probably be a bit distracted as we read by all these side issues. And I'll explain this and you can see what you think, if I'm getting it right. And you may not agree with me and that's okay, but I'd encourage you to think about your own way of understanding these books and any issues that it causes and how you resolve them. It's good to talk about these things, I think. This is one of the big questions, um, without judgment of each other to understand. Now, I have two touchstones for my reading of the Old Testament historical books, which I'll mention here. So the first is a classic and well-known passage from Paul's letter, 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, describing the purpose of Scripture for Christians. So Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so this tells us that for Paul, and I think for the other apostles, the Bible exists for us as a useful tool for our spiritual growth. And that will become important a bit later. So I'll just keep that in mind. The second touchstone for me is how Paul himself and other early Christian teachers used the Old Testament stories. And the way they used it, in my opinion, was essentially as a kind of archive of illustrations of the spiritual life and how Christ is working today in the church. For example, you can see Paul do this in Galatians chapter 4, where he uses the story of Hagar and Sarah and their two sons they had with Abraham to explain God's covenant with his people. And also in 1 Corinthians 10, he does the same with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea in the Exodus to explain what Jesus has done for us. And this is a method of interpretation. It's sometimes called allegory or typology, and it's using those stories for this purpose. And the upshot of this is that I believe that the purpose of Old Testament stories being in our Bible, in our Christian Bible, is to provide for us symbols, stories, narratives, types, and analogies that allow us better to understand our spiritual journey and to follow Jesus. The spiritual world and its realities are invisible to us, and so one way that we can grasp them and transform our lives is through bringing those things into contact with tangible stories and images that we can apply to ourselves. And so the point of this for me is that when we, as Christians, we read the historical books like Joshua of the Old Testament as scripture, that's what we use them for. Whatever other significance they have or other use they have in other arenas and other areas for the church, they are, I believe, spiritual allegories or types for us. So therefore, there are a few things that I think these books are not for us in this church today. Firstly, I don't think it's important for them to be precisely accurate historical chronicles of events. Um, It's not particularly significant for our faith 
whether or not these things actually happened in the manner that's described here. Now, archaeology and historical research may confirm that these things did happen, or it may not, but I don't think it's of great relevance or first relevance to us as Christians. Secondly, I don't think they're to be used as direct parallels or instructions for our ethics or our actions today, in the sense that we just read it and do what those people in those stories did. Um, there is a distance there. Our faith is mediated through Christ and his gospel and how he teaches us how to live. And finally, I think we should only use these books very carefully for direct theological understanding about the nature of God. Only in a limited sense do we read Joshua and say, this is what God is like, without further grappling with the New Testament and with Jesus and what he's revealed to us. And so with those things in mind, I also want to say up front, I don't believe that the story of the book of Joshua has any relevance directly to contemporary Middle Eastern politics or what is happening in Gaza today. Um, I'm not going to draw any parallels there, and I'd encourage you to avoid doing so as well. I don't think that's helpful for anyone. Um, so when we read Joshua, we're not, we're, we're not looking back at an ancient culture and the story of an ancient war and attempting to justify it or to replicate it in the life of modern Christians. We're asking, how do we move forward with Christ and in our faith in him? And I do think that Joshua is helpful in that because it provides us with a framework and with stories for understanding how we enter into the kingdom of God with Jesus as our leader. Actually, I think the kingdom of God does come here, yes. So we've talked a lot about the kingdom of God in the last couple of years here at St. Mark's. Um, as a refresher, well, for those who are new, the way I understand the kingdom of God is essentially it's the heart of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. And for Jesus, the kingdom of God is the reality of God's presence in our world today. So the world around us has two dimensions. So there's the physical reality that we can see and the spiritual reality of God's purposes and his power acting upon the world. And when God's spirit and his power acts upon the world and is manifested, we see transformation happening. So people are forgiven their sins. They're healed. And we see reconciliation and peace. And we see justice and unity and the growth of love and faith in our lives and in the lives of our community. And so this is the kingdom of God, I believe. It's not a political entity. It's a spiritual reality. And to be a Christian is to be dedicated to experiencing the kingdom of God in our lives, following Jesus in his power to open up that kingdom to us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And what I think Joshua does is it allows us to, to understand this process of entering into the kingdom of God and what that looks like in our lives. Because Joshua is the story of God's people entering into the land of promise, where they will experience God's presence living with them. So what's the framework then of the story of Joshua before we get into it? I think we can see this in our reading from verses 2 to 6 of chapter 1 that we said. The Lord says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Now, most commentators see these kind of verses as a statement of the shape of the whole book of Joshua to come. And that there are three stages, essentially, or three sections in the book of Joshua. And so these three stages are, the first is the story of the people entering into the land. 
The second is um, the story of the battles and the, that they entertained when they entered and the victory that they won. And the third is the process of inheriting and dividing the land among God's people. And these three stages then of the story take um, the people of Israel from their position outside the land, waiting to enter, into the time when they're settling into this land and attempting to live according to the law and to live with God. Um, and so um, in the coming weeks, I think that we will see that these three stages have parallels with the life of a Christian person entering into the kingdom of God with Jesus. And I think that we can hold on to a couple of symbols of Joshua that help us keep this in mind. So firstly, generally, I'm going to be interpreting the promised land for us as referring to the kingdom of God. As the Israelites were called to enter into the promised land, Christians are called to actively enter into the experience of God's kingdom. And I think also in Joshua himself, we have a figure or symbol of Jesus for us. So Joshua and Jesus, you may know, are literally the same name. Uh, Joshua is just the Hebrew version of the Greek name that became Jesus. So this story reminds us, I think, that as we enter the kingdom of God, we have an empowered leader in Jesus Christ, and it is according to his wisdom and principles that we enter and inherit the kingdom. And also that as we do enter into that kingdom, we do have a battle to fight too. Um, but the battle is not a holy war. It consists of, instead of the spiritual struggle that's necessary to manifest God's kingdom in our lives. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. So the promised land of God's kingdom in Jesus, it can't be brought about through military or political conquest. It can only exist through people who express that kingdom through their own spiritual lives and their actions. And it's not manifest through violence, but through peace, through love and through sacrificial service of other people, as Jesus did. And this battle is a struggle against the obstacles and resistance of evil and sin, both in ourselves and in the world. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this struggle is a fearsome one, as you may know. And we need confidence and assurance of victory as we go through it and to do things in God's way. And that's why Joshua, I think, receives this encouragement from the Lord in verses 7 to 9. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua had the assurance from God that he would be with him wherever he went. And I think as Christians, we also have this assurance that Jesus is with us as we enter into his kingdom and that the Holy Spirit will guide us into that. See, see, for instance, in Matthew 28, in the end of the, that gospel, verses 18 to 20, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go out into the world and preach the kingdom. This is what he said to them. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And also Jesus spoke to his disciples before his death in John chapter 16, verse 13, about the Holy Spirit. He says, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. As we enter the kingdom, we will have a guide and we will know how to go. So um, as we begin this series on Joshua today, I think we have several encouragements for it on our journey today as followers of Jesus. Um, In the next seven weeks, we're going to see other stories and other symbols, I think, that help us to anchor our journey and our confidence as Christian people. Um, And our takeaway, I think, from this first reading today, as the people wait outside the land, is this, that God's promise to us, to his people, is that his kingdom is available to us now and that it's possible to enter into it by faith. And we also have confidence that Jesus Christ has gone before us into the kingdom and he's won a victory for us over the powers that resist us. So like the Israelites in Joshua, our main calling is to follow in faithful trust, to allow God's kingdom to take over our lives and to show his presence to the world around us. So as we begin, I want to pray and then we're going to pray for our world and the kingdom come. So let's consider that today as we come into this time together. We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is here and your kingdom is near. We thank you that in the story of Joshua and the people of Israel, we have a picture of this for us, the confidence that you will lead us into the way we need to go and manifest the kingdom through your people, that you will fight on our behalf and that victory is assured. We pray that as we grapple with this difficult book, with the challenges it raises for our understanding of the world and of our of you and of faith, that we would come more clearly to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I pray that today we would take the boldness and encouragement away that the people of Israel did. So we pray all this together in Jesus' name. Amen.